So, um, as promised, we're back to our main preaching series in Exodus. We've been away for a couple of months, uh, you know, in, in Exodus. I don't know if you still remember the last time we were here. We were in chapter 17. So, um, so this morning we're going to start chapter 18. But before that, let me just get everybody up to speed, uh, especially those who haven't been here uh, throughout this series. So, um, the story of the Exodus is, is centered around God, Okay. Uh, let's not miss that uh, from the get-go. It's centered around God, but it's about the, the Israelites, uh, the Israelites' journey out of Egypt. So after 400 years of slavery, the Israelites are now free people. Um, so the first part of the Exodus narrative is, is that. It's showing the Israelites' um, slavery and then uh, God sending Moses. And even uh, before that, uh, it's, it's the, the preparation of Moses uh, to be the, the Savior for the uh, the Israelites. So um, at this point of the story, God has now saved the people uh, from slavery. God has, um, throughout the salvation, throughout the rescue, uh, God has shown these people over and over again His great power and presence to save. Uh, he has brought them out of bondage in Egypt and even defeated the Egyptians once and for all uh, at the Red Sea. Remember, crossing of the Red Sea, that's where the Egyptians were defeated. Then after finally taking the Israelites out of Egypt, God must now take Egypt out of his people. Uh, this means that even after they've left Egypt, uh, physically, they are still in bondage mentally. They still think they're slaves. Uh, they still carry that leaven of Egypt in them. Um, or in other words, they still have that slave mentality. So what, what did God do? God led them this way um, to, the, to the long route to get to the promised land. Uh, what was that for? It was to teach them uh, to, be acclimated, to be acclimated under the rule of God, under the sovereignty of God. And the Israelites, uh, what, what they needed at that point was to continue to be convinced that God is with them for the long run, right? That God is not, you know, just show up one day and then go away the next. That God would be there for the long haul through thick and thin, through good times and bad. But what we saw at the end of chapter 15 and at the, all the way to the end of chapter 17 uh, was the failure of the Israelites to fully trust in God. Uh, we saw trial after trial, test after test. The Israelites doubted, they grumbled, and they were discontent. Uh, to the point at the end of chapter 17 that they were questioning God's goodness to them. Uh, do you remember this part? Where they um, accused God of, you know, taking them to the desert only to kill them and their children um, because they, they, they didn't have any water. Uh, you remember that part? So that's where we ended a couple of months ago. Uh, that's where we, chapter 17, uh, ended. Uh, and not, not even there. After that, um, they had a fight, remember? They had to fight with, with Amalek and the Amalekites. And that's where it ended. So after they grumbled, after they complained, then came this tribe of Amalekites and they waged war with them. And what God do, saved them again. Right? Um, so that's where it ends, after the fight with Amalek. And then you go to chapter 18 and all of a sudden, it's a family reunion. <laughs> it's weird. Uh, so this is a weird part. This is where a story takes a weird turn. Let me just read to you guys again, uh, verses 1 to 5. Uh, of chapter 18. This is after the Amalek fight. Um, 
It says, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for, the Israel, uh, for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home. Along with her two sons, the name of the one was Jershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and the name of the other, uh, Eliezer, for he said that the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. So at the end of chapter 17, after the fighting, Moses and the Israelites seem to have moved on uh, from the place that they were at, which was Rephidim, and were now encamped at the mountain of God. Um, if you look at the map uh, of the Exodus, uh, the map back then of the Exodus time, uh, Rephidim is a one big area. Uh, within Rephidim uh, is this mountain called the mountain of God. Uh, some say it's Mount Sinai. Some say it's Mount Horeb. Remember what, what the significance is of Mount Horeb? This is where God called Moses with the burning bush, Mount Horeb. So that's where they're at. Uh, they were at the place where um, Moses was called by God to the burning bush. And this is close to Midian where his father-in-law lived. Uh, Exodus 19, 1-2 confirms this. Um, 19, 1-2 says, On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out, of the land of Egypt. On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses were, went up to God, and the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall, you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. So they're, they're here, but my uh, you know, when you read your Bible, we, we were just learning this in, in Sunday school. You observe, right? Uh, you observe first. Observe, interpret, apply. One of the observations uh, that kind of jumped out at me was in verse 2. What does verse 2 say? Ex uh, Exodus 18, verse 2. Can you guys read that part? Can you flash it? Exodus 18, 2. So apparently, throughout this whole story, uh, if you remember from chapter 1, there was somewhere in the story that Moses sent his wife home. You guys remember where that is? Neither do I. Because it doesn't say. <laughs> Nowhere there says, it, you read the chapters before, where Moses sent his wife home. So when did they go home? Now, there's a lot of commentaries, a lot of theologians, some of which are, you know, commented on this topic. Now, the Bible itself is quiet on this topic, uh, but there are a few suggestions. Some even said um, that Moses and Sephora got divorced. After, remember, uh, when they were in the inn, when Moses was on his way to Egypt, after talking to the burning bush, he brought his wife with him, left Midian on the way to Egypt. They were in the inn, and God wanted to kill him. And Sephora circumcised one of their sons to save Moses. Remember that part? Some people say, some commentaries say, that's when Moses sent them home. Some say that's when Sephora got mad at Moses because, you know, he was what he did, or 
God tried to kill him, that he had to save and that, he had to, that she had to circumcise their son. And that's where they got divorced. <laughs> that's where they separate ways. But it doesn't really say that. Uh, so for our purposes, okay, when it's like that, um, it, it's useless to go back and forth with these commentaries. Because that's not the point of the story. <laughs> um, yeah, it is there. You ask the question, when did Moses send Zipporah home? But it, it, does, does it play a big part in the point of the story? I, I don't think so. So for our purposes, I would just say this, that the reason why and when Moses chose to separate with his family, again, does not play a huge part. It plays a part, not a huge part in the main lesson of the narrative. Uh, so, uh, what is significant then about this scene in chapter 18? Um, what, 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 what is it that we should take out of it, extract from it, learn from uh, this part in chapter 18? Uh, I think uh, and I believe that it's that, that mutual respect between Moses and his father-in-law Jethro. There's mutual respect. So, if Moses did send them home, uh, I believe that he sent them home after they were rescued after they crossed the Red Sea. You can check out your commentaries. Some, I think it was Calvin that said that. Uh, because uh, Calvin's um, reasoning was that, you know, Moses brought his family with him because he wanted them to see how God saves. Because he wanted them to believe in God as well. So it wasn't just him that witnessed God's miracles. He brought his family with him. So Calvin is saying he, he couldn't have sent them home before all these Things happened. He brought them with him. Now, after they crossed the Red Sea on the way to, um, to, to the promised land, they had to go the long way. Now, since they're going the long way and they're going to pass by Jethro, father-in-law, here you go. Go visit your, your family. Uh, I think that makes sense, right? I mean, I don't take that as interpretation. Again, I'm just trying to make sense of why the Bible would say, you know, Moses sent them home. Um, I think it's just it's that, to show respect to Jethro. I'm passing by. Maybe you want to go see your father. Uh, and then Jethro showing the same respect back to Moses after they moved on from Rephidim, after the battle with the Amalekites, gave it back to Moses. <laughs> Let me bring your wife and kids back to you. Um, and I think that's, that's it. That's the gist of that whole part of the the story, that's the significance of it. To show the respect, mutual respect between Moses and his father-in-law, Jethro. Uh, and we'll, we'll see why that's significant later on. So again, at first glance, while I was studying this, there seems to be nothing significant about what just took place in these verses. I was even tempted to just skip these verses. <laughs> because the real meat of this chapter is that next, that next half where Jethro gives Moses some advice about leadership. That's the meat, right? So what is this for? Why, why are we even here? Well, I, I think it's important still um, because, uh, again, the key to understanding that first half of chapter 18 is found in Jethro's response to the testimony of Moses. When you read through chapter, uh, chapter 18, when Moses um, met Jethro, okay, uh, brought him to a tent, and then they asked each other, how are you doing? How are you doing? Moses, after that, told Jethro what happened to them, to the Israelites, right? Uh, Moses said, the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, right? What, what the Lord had done 
to, the, to, the, to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, to save Israel. And then he talked about all the hardships that they experienced along the way. Right? Uh, and how the Lord had delivered them from these hardships. And then look at Jethro's response after Moses told him that. Uh, verses 9 to 11. You guys read that. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered your people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all God's gods, because he has spared the Pharaoh and the heart of the people. So you see Jethro just after Moses told him, This is what God did, this is what God did for us. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord. Verse 10. And then verse 11, he said, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Now, according to one of the commentaries I'm reading uh, with this, uh, Riken's commentary, Jethro's response tells us a couple of things. First, about Jethro. Okay? What does it tell us about Jethro? Uh, first, being the priest of Midian, okay, it means that Jethro is really a servant of a pagan god. That's number one. Second, uh, which confirms the first, is that Jethro, when he said, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, tells us uh, that Jethro was a polytheist, that he believes in many gods, which in that day and time is normal. Uh, most people in those days, that's why the Israelites were like kind of like a bunch of weirdos. They only believe in one God. The Egyptians believe in multiple. Jethro uh, believes in multiple gods. So now, um, now that we know that that's, that's Jethro, what can we learn uh, from this part of the story? Uh, and why is this part of the story so important in today's society? So I'm going to try and answer these questions from an evangelistic perspective. Okay, when I say that, I mean, let's look at this from the perspective of evangelist and mission field. Who's the evangelist in the story? Moses. Because he's telling Jethro the good news. What happened to them? This is what happened to us. That's good news. That's gospel. Right? Jethro is mission field. The mission field. Now, Jethro is not the typical mission field that we're thinking about. And when Piper says mission field, these are unreached peoples. Right? But when I say mission field, I mean mission field that we have even right here. Because Jethro was not an atheist. He believed that there is gods. He wasn't an atheist, and he was respectful of Moses. He wasn't, he's not like those angry people in the pride parade, or, you know, when people come up to the street preachers, and they're all cussing at them. And He's not one of those mission fields. This is, he's a, we call him a quote-unquote a believer, but he doesn't quite understand who the true God is. There's a lot of them here, <laughs> even in this room right now. But we believe, I believe that there is a God. I believe if you go out there and ask people by the subway, do you believe there is a God? A lot of people say, yes, there is a God. But they don't know which God they're talking about. And for a lot of Christians, the same thing. I believe that there's a God. That's why I go to church. But... Are you worshiping the 
the God. Or you're just worshiping a God. So we're going to look at it in that sense. Moses is the evangelist. Jethro is the mission field. So first, let's take a look at the part of the story from the evangelist point of view, from Moses' point of view. So when you look at the story, Moses, knowing that his father-in-law was a pagan priest um, who also worships and believes in multiple gods, instead of confronting him right away, your God is... I've seen my God work. He defeated all the gods in Egypt. Your God is no God. Instead of doing that, what did he do? He used it as an opportunity to share to Jethro the wondrous works of salvation of the one true God. How did he start off? Verses 6 and 7. You guys read it. How did Moses do that? How, how did he even start? How did he begin to share the gospel. That's why it's evangelism 101, right? Exodus 18, 6 and 7. When he sent word of Moses, I, your father in law, Jethro, am coming to you, your wife, and your children. Moses went out to meet his father in law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Okay. What did Moses do? There's a couple of things that we can see in this passage that will help us to witness okay, or to effectively share the gospel to others. And it's basic. You guys should know this already, but it's just a reminder. Okay? There's a couple of things there that will help us effectively share the gospel to others. Uh, effective evangelism happens when the evangelist finds the balance between love and truth. You can't preach the gospel and just preach love without truth and you can't preach just truth without love there is a balance now, Moses shows us what that balance is again Moses knows Jethro is pagan he believes in other gods lots of gods but even so did you see what Moses did there at the start when Jethro came he showed love and respect to Jethro even though he knows that Jethro does not serve the God of the Israelites, right? Moses, after receiving word that Jethro was coming to camp, went out to meet him. That's, that's huge. Because at this point, if you beat, okay, let's, let's, I'll put it in box, boxing terms. If the Israelites, oh, sorry, if the Egyptians used to be the, 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 the champs, undisputed champs of the world, superpowers, and Moses beat them, and the Israelites beat them, who are the champs now? Israelites, right? If you're a man of that stature, and he's the leader of the Israelites, right? If you're a man of that stature, you don't go out to meet anybody. They come to meet you. <laughs> you wait for them to come and meet you. But that's not what Moses did. Moses went out to meet Jethro. And not, not only that, upon meeting Jethro, what did he do? He bowed down and kissed him. And then he asked how he was, how he was doing. Imagine that. This is significant because during those times again, Moses was a great man. Now, even Jethro heard of him. He's great. But Moses 
didn't act like he was great because he knows he's not great. <laughs> You'll see it in his testimony later on, how he shared the gospel. It wasn't about him. It was all about God. So he knows he wasn't great. And plus, he wanted to share with his father-in-law. So he showed him love and respect. He showed humility and respect to his father-in-law by meeting him, even bowing down and kissing him. Uh, no, this, this is where love plays a huge role in effective evangelism. Okay? Reichen comments this. Uh, Mo Moses was also reaching out to his family in love. He knew how to love someone who was still outside the family of faith. Some Christians reserve their warmest affection for other believers. Yet, often we fail to show the same kind of love to people who are outside of God's family. Sometimes the problem is our pride. Our desire to straighten people out spiritually gets in the way of our serving them with sacrificial love. This is especially true of new Christians. As soon as they discover the truth in Christ Jesus, they assume it is their job to correct everyone else's theology. This almost inevitably results in conflict, some of which is unnecessary. And often it takes years to repair the damage. That's why I'm not 100% agreed to street preaching. Especially those that are uh, instigating. You know what instigating means? I don't agree with that because you're making it harder for the next person to share the gospel with these people. Right? If all you're going to say is, I know the love of God, I know the love of God, and all you want to do is to tell them they're wrong, then you're just inciting a fight. <laughs> you're just inciting an argument. Um, I don't agree with, with that. Um, it's like uh, anybody who has Catholic relatives. If you approach your Catholic relative, you go to their house, you see the statues. Santo Niño, Santo Tomas, Santo Papa, Santo. Right? You don't go there and say, Ay, mga demonian, these are all idols, these are all. Do you think if you go there and do that, do you think that that will do the, your purpose for evangelism, which is to share the goodness of God? And so that they can see it for themselves and God, by His grace and mercy, will give them the faith to believe. Do you think that, that, will, that will do it? That kind of strategy of just go in there and just bomb them? <laughs> no. There has to be love. And I know what you're saying is true. That those are idols. But you have to do it in love. At the same time, if you don't love the people that you are preaching to or that you are sharing to, I think people feel that, that you're just telling them what you know, but you don't really want them to know it. You want them to know that they're wrong and that you're right. And I think people feel that. Um, I, have ex I experienced that uh, during my ministry here. Uh, first with the young people. Okay? Uh, when I started with the young people, there were, there were 15, 16, 18-year-olds. Uh, I hate that age range. <laughs> because that's the age range where they think that they know everything. You know, and they keep talking back to you like they know. I hate that. I can't deal with them. 
So I, what, what I did was, I'm just going to do my job. I'm just going to share. And I don't care about them. You know, they can leave, whatever. I don't care. Did my ministry grow? Did the ministry grow? No. Until you love them, you actually love them, and they feel that you love them. They see that you love them. That's when the ministry grows. That's when the Word of God takes root. But other than that, if you're just doing it to just bash people over the head with the, with the Bible, it doesn't really work. And that happened here as well <laughs> during my ministry as a pastor. I didn't love you guys <laughs> when I started. I'll be honest. I, I, I was just doing it because Pastor Luis left. <laughs> I didn't love you. I didn't love anybody here. I didn't care if you listened to me or not. I didn't care if you got it or not. I didn't care if you, you know. But that's not how it that's not how it works. That's not, that's not evangelism. That is not effective evangelism. Even babies feel that. You know when babies, when you're just trying to put them to sleep, and you're rushing to put them to sleep? Do they sleep? No. It's when you actually want to hold them and want to, you know, spend that time with them until they fall asleep. That's when they sleep. If you don't rush them through it without any love, even babies feel it. So I know that you guys too. I know that those people out there in the streets who are, you know, being bombarded sometimes unnecessarily with the gospel. Maybe that's why, that's why they react that way. Ephesians uh, 4, 15 to 16. Can you guys read that? In love, we are to go on in love and pray to give who is the head in the context of Ephesians 4, that's the, the growth of believers in the church. Uh, and obviously not everyone who goes to church is a Christian. Not everyone's a mature believer. So our goal is to help them to maturity. Right? Those of us who are mature. And how are you supposed to do that? Just love them? No, it says there, speak the truth in love. When I first um, understood the big God theology, you know what I'm saying? Big God theology, the sovereignty of God theology, or some people know it as Reformed theology, or some people know it as Calvinism. Uh, I don't like throwing out that word because some people just shut their ears after hearing that um when i first learned that i was like wow that's this is the truth everybody should know this that god in his sovereignty chose to save everyone not everyone just don't just those whom he chooses and i was so excited to share this to people that i didn't care if i uh, shared it in love i just want them to i just want to straighten them out so i was in a bible study once um and what what's, what's bad about this is the Bible study was with my wife's family. Right? So they're Armenian, <laughs> meaning they, they feel like they have free will and this and this and that. Um, that they're the ones who chose to believe in God and, you know, it has nothing to do with, with God. It's up to me to choose. So I'm like, no, that's wrong. God chooses the ones that are going to be saved. And I went overboard when I said, 
That's why your kids are not here. That's why your kids don't want to join Bible study. Maybe because they're not chosen. I had no right to say that. <laughs> I don't know who's chosen and who's not. But I was so excited. I got ah, to straighten these people out. I, me and my wife, even had a, a, a fight over it because I did the same to her. In three weeks, we didn't, we didn't talk <laughs> just because of that topic. I think me and my dad almost had the same thing. Um, but you know what I'm saying? If you do it that way, sometimes you close the door completely. That happened more than, I would say, 15, 20 years ago. And I still haven't been invited to their Bible study since. <laughs> because it wasn't done, I spoke the truth, it wasn't done in love. That's why Paul urges the believers in Ephesus, if you're going to correct somebody in the church with wrong theology, do it in love. We have some Armenians here. <laughs> You're biblical. That's right. That's right. That's why I love Kuei Alejo. Um, but that's what I'm saying. Like we can, we, can, we can talk about it. There's no need to prove your right, they're wrong, or the other way around. Because you can talk about it. Uh, and that's what Paul is saying here. If you do it in love, speak the truth in love, both of you will grow spiritually. And there will be unity in the body of Christ. But let's not take um, the speaking the truth in love as just, you know, I'll, I'll tell the truth that they want to hear. No, no, no. You can't be that either. Um, it's okay to rebuke. It's okay to correct people, especially when, when it comes to their knowledge of God and His Word. But do it out of love for them. Not out of pride in your knowledge of the truth. Because what does it say? What does the Bible say? Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Our goal is to build up. Right? Now, just like what I kind of alluded to earlier, the opposite extreme of this is to love them without truth. So don't just spill truth without love, but don't just love without truth. Don't stray away from doctrines or topics that might offend somebody. Or, um, you know, the focus of our evangelism should just be the, just the love of God, and that's it. No. Because instead of um, standing on the truth of God's Word, when we love without truth, and we affirm everybody's subjective truth for the sake of having these people hear the gospel, then you're not really loving them. You're just giving them half. You have to give them the whole thing. Uh, you have to preach the complete gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ must come with the preaching of the bad news. Of what? Sin and the wrath of God that is coming against it. Or if you know that your brother is in error, understanding the scriptures wrong, confront, preach the scriptures, the whole scriptures. Um, good news is just good news, uh, sorry, good news is just news without the bad news that precedes it. 
We don't want it to just be news. We want it to be good news. Um, but if you do it that way, if you're just going to, you know, just preach love, 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 and no truth, uh, then you're not really evangelizing. And in your, evangel in your version of evangelization, it's not very loving. What does it mean to love somebody? Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, that's the most popular one, right? Check out 1 Corinthians 13, 46. That's the most popular chapter on it. Not arrogant, doesn't boast. But it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. So speak the truth, but speak it in speak it in love. In order to truly love someone, we must be willing and able to preach the truth of God's word. Uh, Moses, even before sharing God's words, or before sa uh, sharing God's saving work with Jethro, did it in a way that is loving showed respect to his father-in-law, even though he knew that Jethro was a pagan priest. And then, after that, he went, they went into a tent. When people go into a tent in those days, this is some serious talks. Right? That they're they're going to have a serious talk. And this is where Moses, again, took the opportunity, took the advantage of the opportunity to testify about God's salvation for the Israelites. Again, uh, verse 8 in Exodus 18. Then Moses told his father-in-law that the Lord had done all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord delivered them. So the author of Exodus uh, did not go into detail as to what Moses actually said to, to Jethro, but the summary tells us that the testimony of Moses was God-centered. had nothing to do with him. Notice, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All that the Lord had done. Moses didn't go and start off to Jethro by saying, Oh yeah, I took my staff. I took my staff and I put it in the, the Nile and it became blood. And I took my staff and I split the Red Sea. That was all. We did that. I did that. He didn't say that. It was all the Lord had done for Israel's sake. I hope none of us <laughs> goes around evangelizing others and saying, Oh yeah, after I heard the uh, gospel, I thought about it really hard. And I chose to believe. I hope nobody goes around saying that. Because I, I decided in my heart of hearts that it was true. That it was real. That, you know, the Spirit spoke to me and I, and I freely received. I opened the door when Jesus knocked. Who's that about? God? Or you? I hope we don't evangelize that way. Uh, we are not the focus of salvation. God is. And He alone saves. That's the first thing you realize when, when, you, when you read Moses' testimony. It's all about God. Uh, second, Moses talked about their struggles after being saved. A lot of us, we don't do that. 
Like when you're a Christian, you're supposed to be okay all the time. Because I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to be happy all the time. Like you put on your church face. Like you don't have any problems. Like you're not going through any trials. Or, that's, not, that's not true about Christianity. Um, Moses talked about their struggles after being saved. Again, verse 8. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way. This is what Moses was telling Jethro. And how the Lord delivered them. Trusting in God for salvation is a lifelong process. No true believer, after receiving the gift of salvation by grace through faith, has ever been exempt from what? Sickness, trials, or even death. No true believer. After, after you got saved, it was all, you know, uh, candy and roses. No. There's still problems. Anybody here no problems? That are not experiencing any problems right now. We all still do, right? That doesn't mean that if you say that, people will say, oh, your God sucks. Why are you experiencing disease? Why? Your God's not powerful. I didn't say that. The good news of God's salvation is that He will deliver us from all these things on earth in order to fulfill His ultimate promise, which is what? Eternal life. The testimonies of these so-called pastors of the prosperity gospel is blasphemous because of this wrong understanding of what it means to be saved by God. For them to be saved by God is not focused on eternal, but focused on immediate, temporal. The health and wealth prosperity gospel. Why do they say that? Because, Because all they're preaching is that. If you give to God, if you stay true to God, He will stay true to you. In what? In giving you health and wealth. That's why a lot of them, they dress, all these pastors, they dress like cars, they have jets. What's, what's their reasoning for that? Oh, they have to see how God blesses. This is how God will bless you. Look, look at me. That's not really from God. That's from your tithes in your offerings. <laughs> Where else are they going to get it that? Are they going to get that? Right? So you need to take advantage of being a pastor, especially in the States. There's no tax. But that's how they lure people in. Now, people with the wrong heart after God who wants wealth and health, they go to those churches. They give money. Because I want to be rich like the pastor. I want to be saved from poverty. I want to be saved from sickness. So let me go there. Let me tell you this. If God's salvation terminated on immediate and temporary relief, if that's, if that's it, if God's just going to save us from poverty and sickness, does, is He really loving? Because none of us are going to be saved from death. Is He really loving if He just saved us from the temporary problems of this world? He's not loving if he stopped at prospering believers here on earth. And for those who come to God just for the promise of health and wealth, again, you're following the wrong God. What did Jesus say? After feeding the 5,000 in John 6, what did Jesus say? Let's Let's read it. John 6, 12. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments. This is after feeding the 5,000. They gathered up the, they gathered them up 
filled 12 baskets of fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who eat. And then verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, what did they say? This is indeed the prophet. This is it. This is Moses. Come back. 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, because he, he just, they just saw his miracle. What did Jesus do? Withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus left because these guys are going to make him king. This guy, this guy can make bread, multiply. You're king. <laughs> Let's skip to 25. So after Jesus left, he went to the other side of the sea. What did these people do? They looked for him. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus said, 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father has set his seal. Look at their response, 28. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered to them, this is the, the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. They said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna. There's still, where's our manna? In Tagalog, asa yung manna ko? Ibang manna. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father will give you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from the heaven and, give you, and gives life to the world. They said to him, Give us this bread. Oh. They, they still want bread, like real bread. And then Jesus said, I am the bread of life who comes. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 66. Let's skip to 66 this time. After Jesus said that, he said to them, Eat my flesh, drink my blood. This is how you, this is how you partake of the bread of life. What did they react? How did they react after that? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer. A lot of disciples, okay, they see God as that. A lot of people only think that God is good when the good times are going on. <laughs> when it's bad times, all of a sudden, it's God, why? God, why? Like God changed from the time you got your job to the time you lost it. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, do you realize that? I realize that about myself. A lot of times, that's, what, that's who we are. We think that everything that God's supposed to do for us is, is done right here on earth, objectively, that we can see. If we don't see it, it's not being done. That's not how God works. So when we evangelize, we tell them the whole truth. Don't leave the part that I'm struggling, by the way. <laughs> but even through it all, God was with me. He delivered me from the struggles. He delivered me from the trials. 
pointing back to him, even in the struggles. Right? When we evangelize, we share the whole truth of God's word, not just parts that are easy to swallow and pleasant to hear. Let's not present a gospel with the love of God in big, bold letters and the wrath of God in fine print. Or the Christian struggles in fine print. You don't want them to read that. You don't want to know that. Because how are we going to get people to come in if we say we're all just struggling as well? We have to be all rich. We have to be should wear like gold watches and buy a jet from Grimsby to here. <laughs> Otherwise, how are you going to believe? It's not my job to make you believe. Evangelism is not that. Evangelism is planting the seed, but you have to plant the whole thing. Evangelism, sharing the gospel, is all or nothing. You share it all or don't share. Proclaiming the whole thing or none of it. Not doing anyone any favors by sweetening the gospel. True love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. So that's why when we see all these uh, churches that are affirming the lifestyle, LGBTQAA plus, 2 plus lifestyle, it, when we see them affirming it, that's what they're doing. They tell them the love of God is God loves you no matter who you are. That's true. Are you really loving them, though, if you're not calling out the lifestyle? No. Right. So from an evangelist's point of view, that was how Moses shared the gospel to Jethro. Loved him first, but loved him enough to tell the truth. Amen? Now, the question is, did Jethro believe? <laughs> That's the question. Um, let's look at Jethro's response again. You guys read it again, 9 to 12. Did he believe? story from the perspective of an unbeliever, Jethro, even though he's not an atheist. He's an unbeliever. He believes in other gods. Um, so Jethro's relationship with Moses, again, marked with respect. So as far as Jethro is concerned, Moses was free to worship any god. The way Moses respects Jethro for being a priest and a polytheist. So when Jethro rejoiced and blessed the God of Moses after hearing the testimony of Moses, and even saying, now I know that you're, that the Lord, even use God's name, Yahweh, is greater than all gods. Does this mean that Jethro became a believer? Who says, yes, sir, yes, he did. Yes, he was a believer. I mean, you see, 
Oh, people, every time I ask, like, I don't know. Did he become a believer? He said, no. <laughs> Everybody's very gracious in this. So did he become a believer? Yes. <laughs> now you're confident. Yes. But <laughs> at this point in the story, he was a baby believer. So I know some people don't believe that. No carnal Christian. John MacArthur people. No such thing as a carnal Christian. I think he, I think he did become a believer. Uh, and I think that part there where he brought an offering, burnt offering to God, if that was just by himself, I would say, no, this guy didn't become a believer. But Moses and the elders were with him. So they affirmed the offering. So I think he did become a believer, but he wasn't a mature believer yet. Okay? Why do I say that? And I read a couple of commentaries that, that kind of agree with my thought process here. So John Calvin even notes that, uh, or he noted that even though Jethro now knows that the God of Israelites is all-powerful, in fact, Jethro considered him as greater than all the other gods. Uh, this seemed to show that Jethro was still polytheistic in mindset. Because what was he supposed to say? What was Jethro supposed to say if he was already a mature believer? Should he have said uh, what he said? That, oh, yeah, I know, I know, I know that your God is greater than all the other gods. Or should he have said, now I know that there's, also, there's only one true God. And the reason I'm saying that is because some Christians, <laughs> that's how they see God. It's greater than all the other gods. There's no other gods but me, God said. Who are these all other gods? There's a pure, absolute truth about God being God by himself. And we cannot com just compare him. That's why God got rid of all those gods in Egypt, right? You say you're God? No, I beat you. Ten gods he beat in Egypt. Now he's trying to get through to Jethro. Your Midian gods? No gods at all. Because I'm the only one true God. Muslim God? Is that a God? Is that God? <laughs> I think if that's the same. No, it's not the same. And God would take offense to it if we said that the Muslim God and the, uh, I don't know, the Jehovah Witness God they're all the same God. You think God would, you think this God would just sit in heaven and say, okay, I don't mind. They're all pointing to me anyway. No, they're not. If we don't, if we don't have that set in our minds, that God is just by himself, that's why he's God, then we're in the same boat as Jethro. Jethro sees God as just greater than. Not soul God by himself. But is, did he believe? Yeah, I think so. The pure absolute truth is that God is the only God. 
Not just the most powerful. Not just greater than all the other gods. It's only one. Other, if, if, if it's not, then it's not really God. There's other God. It's like truth, right? If there's no absolute truth, <laughs> I'm getting deeper. <laughs> if there's no absolute truth, like if, if everybody has their own truth, then what is truth? So we can't say that God is just greater compared to. No, there's no other gods compared to God. There's no other God. There's only one God. But the good news is, even though Jethro's statement showed his immaturity when it comes to his belief in God, trust in God, the good news is that Jethro's knowledge of God has grown because now he knows, right? Uh, Calvin writes, uh, Jethro seems to have made some advance. For in affirming that he now knows the power of God, he implies that he was more rightly informed than before. Right? Now he knows. How did he know? Because somebody said, somebody witnessed to it. And it's the same thing when Job said it. Right? Check out Job 42, 1 to 6. You guys read. <laughs> But I don't really know you. That's what he said the last part, right? He said, I only heard of you before. But now that I see you, I repent. Because I didn't really know you. I didn't really know you before. Jethro's in the same boat. He knows. He doesn't really know. Uh, will God be gracious enough to allow him to know, let him know, inform him more, reveal himself more? I believe so. So I believe that all people, even those who deny it, and I said this earlier in Sunday school, know that there is a greater power at work in the universe. Everybody knows this. They may attribute that power to nature or to science or to the universe itself, but the bottom line is that no human being can ever deny the existence of this power. Now for them to truly know what or who that power is, someone needs to testify. Because that's the only way they're going to know. We need to testify. And that person must be an eyewitness, has firsthand knowledge and experience of that power. Job had that experience. And he had that experience through the death of his whole family, the loss of everything. That's how he experienced it. Moses, on the other hand, had that experience in the salvation. From slavery. So in other, either or, either case, God can be seen, God can be known in the hurt and in the happiness, in sickness and in health, in richness 
and in poverty, in hunger and abundance. What did Paul say? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He can be known. Problem is, and I said this earlier, that even though people know that there is a God, they suppress their knowledge. Romans 1. I don't want to get to know that God. I like this God. Because this God can determine the truth that it wants. I don't have to follow anybody else. How those people are going to know? Evangelize. As eyewitnesses. Have a first-hand knowledge of the power of God to save. Moses had that. Job, after give, going through everything he went through, saw that. Yeah, even though Jethro still, blur, you know, still has a blurred vision of who God is, of the one true God through Moses, he has now seen the salvation of the Lord. And, and you know, our hope is that Jethro was saved. Right? And this is what separates uh, evangelism from discipleship. What Moses did was evangelism. Spread the gospel, plant the seed through the eyewitness testimony in love. And those who will receive it, receive it by faith. And it's God alone who gives faith and growth. Jethro had a glimpse of God's goodness and power, but has yet to see God clearly. And there's a lot of people like that here today. Even those of you who are at home. They see God as this loving, generous, better than some other gods. Like money or self. But they have yet to fully know. There are some who think that as long as you believe in a God, that you will be saved from hell, which makes all religions pretty much equal. That's what all religions say. Some of them even have you coming back as something else. But you don't really just die. A lot of people like that today. Unfortunately, that's not the God that we worship. That's not the God of the Bible. The Bible says that there's only one God, and that salvation is found in no one else but Him. Jesus calls us to make disciples of all nations, not just make believers out of them. So when we minister, when we evangelize, to people like Jethro, don't just limit it to one meeting. Let's talk again. Let's talk again. Let's keep talking. Paul Washer uh, even said that when he, when he preached at a church, I think it was here in Toronto, his flight was supposed to be the next day. But there was one person that came up to him and just, I just can't get it. I, I don't understand. What did Paul Washer do? Stayed there the whole time until he had given that person a sense of assurance, a sense of, you know, clarity. He missed his flight, everything. That's how you love. That's how you evangelize him. There's a sacrifice involved, even in discipleship, but that's what we must do. We are called to make disciples, not just believers. We all have Jethro's, especially in our family and some in our friends. Let's take advantage of every opportunity to love them and continue to share with them the whole gospel through our actions and our words. And by God's mercy and grace, may they too come to fully know our Lord and Savior Jesus I'm not past this. I'm still getting to know. 
I, I appreciate all the resources that are out there helping me do that. As a church, that's what our goal is, to help you to know God more. And I hope, you know, uh, that we are doing that. We're not just here to, oh, you believe? We're good. Uh, I'll close with this. Salvation of this man, Jethro, shows how God was working out his plan for the salvation of the world. This may be the most important lesson to learn from Jethro's conversion. This episode is much more than the story of the salvation of one man or even one family. The Bible tells this story because it reveals God's plan for the whole world. Salvation was never just for the Jews. In the very beginning, God intended to save people from, from all nations. This was even part of his plan for the exodus. God said to Pharaoh that he was bringing his people out of Egypt so that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth priest of Midian was virtually the first fulfillment of that promise as Moses proclaimed salvation to Jethro. May we do the same. Speak the truth, whole truth in love. Amen. Let's pray. The Lord bless you and Just.